Now, the only thing that did stand out, and it wasn't just with Lara, but it was actually with several of the the kind of high level mediums that I got to test, was that they all showed up positive on the EE, one of the EEG tests as in the traumatic brain injury index. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the person has a, a traumatic brain injury, but what it does mean is that there's something about the way that this person's brain is behaving that does not look normative, right? It's not fitting into the normal structure. And so, you know, the system is kind of tagging it and going like, oh, uh, something's, something's funny here. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, everyone. Today I have a guest, Dr. Jeffrey Tarrant. He does absolutely mind-blowing, fascinating work scanning psychic mediums' brains. And I first heard of him, I guess, like, maybe even in the first six months of when I began researching this. So it is very exciting and surreal to have him here. Dr. Tarrant is the founder and director of Psychic Mind Science and the Neuromeditation Institute. He's a licensed psychologist and he's board certified in neurofeedback. Dr. Tarrant specializes in teaching, clinical applications, and research combining technology-based interventions with meditative states for improved mental health. His research focuses on exploring brainwave changes that occur as a result of contemplative practices, technological interventions, non-ordinary states of consciousness, and psi-related abilities. He is also the author of the book, Meditation Interventions to Rewire the Brain, and the upcoming Becoming Psychic. So welcome, Dr. Tarrant. Thank you, Liz. It's uh, it's great to be here, and uh, yeah, you know, great to have met you in person just recently, and and I appreciate being on the show. Well, I really appreciate having you, and we met at an event that he presented at with Laura Lynn Jackson, who was one of the first mediums I met, who is very involved in scientific research and is part of the Forever Family Foundation, which. I talk about on here a lot, and she's the one who introduced me to my mentor, who I know I share with a lot of you, Fran Ginsberg, who is very much in my heart. So I think 
Maybe we should start with Laura, because what I find so interesting about her is that she describes her experiences of giving psychic readings different than medium readings. She sees a screen and sees psychic on one side and medium information on the other. And for anyone who doesn't know, psychic is when a psychic medium communicates with someone who's living and gets information on their life. And mediumship is when they communicate with a discarnate, one of our loved ones who's passed away. Now tell us, how has scanning Laura's brain backed that up? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so so Laura was actually only the second psychic medium that I was able to get brainwave data on. And, uh, you know, going back, what, 10 or 11 years now. And it was interesting because, you know, to be honest, at that point, I kind of didn't really know what I was doing so much, right? I was I was doing the best I could and collecting data and then kind of looking at it to see what was there. And, you know, Laura did describe, because of course I was new to a lot of this. And so was asking a lot of questions. So what is it like when you get psychic information and how is that different than a mediumship reading? And so some of the things you just explained and before we even did the recordings, the imaging I do is with uh, EEG. It's a 19 channel EEG, which makes it easy to use. It's very portable and accessible. And so we were actually doing this recording at a Forever Family Foundation conference. Can you just explain an EEG, it measures activity in the brain? Sure. So yeah, an EEG is uh, stands for you know electroencephalograph, and it's it's measuring electrical activity in the brain. So every cell in our body uses electricity to transmit signals, including your brain cells. And so that's what brain waves are. When we talk about brain waves, it's electricity. And you know the the brain is constantly creating electrical impulses in a whole bunch of different frequencies. And that's where it gets really fun because it's not just information about whether parts of the brain are active or not active. Certainly it can tell you that, but because there's a lot of different frequencies in the brain, there's slow brain waves like delta and theta, and there's fast brain waves like beta, high beta, gamma. And then there's stuff in the middle like alpha, right? So there's a lot of different types of brainwave activity that are all happening at the same time everywhere. And they're all kind of moving around. So really what it's doing is it's giving us information about a state of consciousness, even more than just active versus not active, because there's a lot of different things happening there. So, you know, I'm not trying to say it's better than imaging that looks at blood flow, but it certainly gives you a, a wider range of information. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yes. And so then that is what you brought when you went to this Forever Family event in 2008 and met Laura and scanned her brain. Yeah, indeed. And so, you know, really what we did was we kind of looked at, you know, got a baseline recording of her brainwave activity when she was sitting there doing nothing. Then we'd get a measure of her sitting, having a normal conversation you know, talking about the conference, talking about dinner, talking about the weather, and then asked her, okay, you know, go ahead and do a psychic reading. And so she actually did the reading on me, which was interesting. And I was in my perfect scientist mode. So 
you know, I didn't smile. I didn't blink. I didn't, I gave her zero information about how I was receiving any of this. I just made notes, kept looking at the computer to make sure my EEG signals were good. And then after that, when she, you know, she said she was ready to switch. So she switched over into mediumship mode and I did the same thing. So what these recordings allowed me to do was then compare and say, well, what's your brain doing during baseline or when you're talking about just normal everyday stuff versus when you're doing a psychic or a mediumship reading? And you're right. Laura is unique in that she makes a clear distinction between those two things. Not everybody that I've met makes such a clear distinction. It's kind of like the information bleeds together and they feel like maybe they get it at the same time and in a similar way. And, you know, Laura describes seeing the information on these kind of inner screens. She's, she sees them in her mind, but she sees psychic information in her left visual field. I think that's right. And she gets mediumship information in her right visual field. So she told me this before we did any recordings, right? And so what was really intriguing was when I analyzed the data, we saw the the biggest changes in her brainwave activity were in the occipital lobe, which is at the very back of the brain, and it's where we process visual information. So that by itself was kind of cool, right? Because, you know, when I when I talk about this, like literally we were sitting in the most boring conference room you could imagine. Everybody's been in a conference room in a hotel. There's like a fake plant in the corner and a trash can and a table. Like that's it. So visually, she was not picking up on anything in the room that could have been that engaging. But yet the part of her brain that was processing visual information lit up. What was more interesting than that is that the right side of her occipital lobe lit up when she was doing a psychic reading and the left side lit up when she was doing a mediumship reading. And the reason that's important is because the way the brain processes visual information is it actually processes the left visual field and the right visual field on opposite sides of the occipital lobe. So the way that Laura described what she was seeing was exactly what we saw when we looked at her brainwave activity. I know you're still a semi-skeptic. I'm still a semi-skeptic, even though I've seen a lot of really weird things. But, you know, for me, that was like really, it's like, man, that's about as close to kind of hard evidence as you're going to get. There's no way we can prove some of these things, but that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, there's few things that I've gotten that are better than that. You were the sitter which is the person getting the reading and was the information she was getting on you very accurate. It was. And that was interesting too, because this was the first time we met was at this conference. She was busy the entire conference. You know, it's not like, I, by the way, I've been reading your book and enjoying it. So it's funny because some of the things you describe, I can totally relate to, right? Cause I'm like, okay, I don't want to give her any information about myself. And yeah. So if you read my book, you know, Laura is incredibly patient because <laughs> she put up with a lot from me for quite a few years. <laughs> well, you know, I, I suspect that you're not the only one. So I was pretty careful to not give her any information in advance. Now, she knew I was a scientist. She knew I did brain imaging stuff. You can figure some stuff out, just figuring out my 
approximate age and I've got a ring on my finger, I'm married, right? There's some obvious cues. You can figure some stuff out. If she would say things that kind of were, eh, could have been a good guess. It was like, eh, all right, okay, fine. But then she would do stuff like, you know, like go, you've got two kids. Yes. The older one's a girl. Yes. The younger one's a boy. Yes. Uh, your daughter's like this, like nail her personality. Your son's like this, nail his personality. You know, just like one thing after another, um, just like hitting the nail on the head, right? And it was like, oh, okay, all right. What was interesting is that I was taking extensive notes the whole time she was doing the reading, and I still have them. And so when I was working on my my new book, I drug all that that stuff out and was looking at it. And it was wild because some of the stuff that she said back then hadn't happened yet. And now looking at those notes 10 years later, it's like, oh my God, you know, she told me that I was going to write a book. And it's like, uh, you know, again, like, you know, actually she said I was going to write two books and, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, okay, fine. You can kind of guess that maybe I would. Well, guess what? You know, my second book is coming out here in a minute. You know, she said, oh, you're going to go to Hawaii. You, oh, you're going to go to Hawaii a couple of times. I went to Hawaii like twice over the next few years after that. She told me I was going to do research in New York and New Jersey. I did research in New York with Forever Family. I went to New Jersey and did research on energy healers. It's just weird, right? Like there's just a lot of things where in retrospect, going back, because at the moment, how the heck do you prove that that was an, an accurate piece of information, right? It didn't happen for years later. And actually with my daughter, she said that she was going to have a, that her life was going to completely change at about the age of 33. And my daughter is just turned 35 and at 33, she uh, got married and then shortly after got pregnant with my granddaughter. So, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff like that. I'm glad to hear that because she made good future predictions for me recently randomly. So that's giving <laughs> me some encouragement. <laughs> Yeah. Keep your notes because I, I would have forgot all that stuff if I hadn't. Uh, I suspect you have a better memory than I do. But if I hadn't written it down, I wouldn't have remembered any of it. I weirdly remember everything perfectly related to afterlife research because I'm so mind blown. But I didn't have a full reading with her yet. I'm still on her long wait list. That was <laughs> just she randomly commented on some good things for my life. So we'll see. Um, so I asked, you were very impressed and obviously, you just gave examples that are really inexplicable by normal means. Was there a remarkable mediumship thing she said as well? If you don't mind sharing, if it's too personal, you don't have to. Yeah, no, thanks. And there's nothing that she said that was too personal, I don't think. You know, the the one thing that really stands out from the mediumship reading was, you know, again, you know, my skeptical hat was on and and I know enough, right? I mean, I'm a psychologist, right? I know how things work and I know how the mind works. And, you know, and she was like, oh, uh, you know, I'm getting a, a grandfather. And it's like, well, you know, okay, you know, I'm in my 40s. The likelihood that I've had a grandfather die is probably pretty high. And it's like, okay, yeah, on your mom's side. Okay, sure. At that point, I think all of my grandfathers had died at that point. So it was like, okay, sure. Oh, I'm getting a name. Uh, it's like a G or a J. And it's like, okay. I usually don't like it when mediums do that. You know, it's, it feels like it could be fishing, right? It's kind of like, oh, you know, all right. And then she says, Giuseppe. And I was like, 
holy shit. It's like, okay, uh, which was my grandpa's name, right? On my mom's side. And it's like, wow, you're not going to just guess Giuseppe, right? Like if you're going to guess, if you're going to guess a name, even in that range, you might say Joe, right? He went by Joe a lot of the time. So, and then, you know, proceeded to provide a lot of information that was very accurate about him. And, and we were pretty close. So that was pretty cool. I mean, getting the name and you were just at the event in uh, San Diego uh, that we just did recently. And there were a couple of times in the gallery reading where she pulled out a specific name that was like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. She pulled out two names that I remember in, in San Diego. And they were again, names that were, would not you wouldn't think they'd be names you would just guess. One was Eugene and one was like Oscar or something like that, right? And it's kind of like, okay, those are not names you would just randomly pick. You'd pick like a Mike. If I was going to try and cold read somebody, that's what I would do, right? Um, yeah, it's like a Mike or, uh, you know, Steve. John. John, yeah. I've seen her read though, and it's super mind-blowing. So I have another specific question about Laura. So you said you scanned her brain at baseline. Was it different than scanning my brain or any other non-medium brain when she's not giving readings? You know, I probably need to go back and look at that data again. There's so many different ways to slice and dice data that what, what often happens is I end up going down one rabbit hole or another and, and then kind of forget about all of the other millions of ways to look at the data. My recollection is that there wasn't anything particularly different that sort of stood out. Now, the only thing that did stand out, and it wasn't just with Laura, but it was actually with several of the, the kind of high-level mediums that I got to test, was that they all showed up positive on the EE, one of the EEG tests as in the traumatic brain injury index. And that was actually about to be one of my questions, was what was a consistency amongst all the mediums you studied. So I guess that would be one of them. And I don't know what that would mean. Right. So one of the analysis systems that I use has a function that basically predicts, right? So it, it takes somebody's brainwave activity and it runs it through an algorithm and predicts based on their EEG pattern if they have a mild traumatic brain injury. And to what degree, right? So it's a predictive model. It's not going to be perfect. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the person has a, a traumatic brain injury. But what it does mean is that there's something about the way that this person's brain is behaving that does not look normative, right? It's not fitting into the normal structure. And so, you know, the system is kind of tagging it and going like, oh, uh, something's, something's funny here, right? There's, it's misbehaving. And so, yeah, you know, just on a whim, actually, it wasn't a whim when I was really doing more of this research directly with mediums, I, I kept hearing from many of them that many of them had had traumatic brain injuries. And so I was like, huh, that's interesting. So, you know, I just decided, well, I'm going to run it through this algorithm and see what happens. And sure enough, the vast majority all came up positive on this metric. So again, it doesn't necessarily mean they have, they have a head injury. But it means that, you know, there's something about the way their brain is behaving that does not sort of fit into what we would consider average. But it's not just one thing. So the mediums who did have traumatic brain injuries, as well as the ones who have not, all had a consistency of showing as if they'd had a traumatic brain injury. 
Yes. And another consistency is that many of them show abnormal EEG activity, which sometimes looks like really dramatic, slow brain waves. And by dramatic, I mean, they're really big, right? So like theta or delta, like really slow, big brain waves, or it almost looks like seizure activity. And it tends to show up in the right rear quadrant of the brain. And, you know, it kind of moves around a little bit. It's not in the exact specific location for every person, but that basic area, almost every medium that I've seen shows some sort of abnormal activity back there. And that could be part of what gets triggered in that traumatic brain injury index, right? Because one of the things that is characteristic of a traumatic brain injury is excessive slow brainwave activity, right? Because if there's an injury, there's going to be excessive slow activity, basically meaning that part of the brain is not doing its job the way that you would expect it to be. You know, we have a lot of slow brain waves when we're asleep, for example, right? But but we also have a lot of slow brain waves when we're healing or when something is like closed for repairs, right? It's kind of like, okay, this is shut down. And so what I think happens with many of the psychics and mediums is that somehow, I don't know how, but they are able to shut down certain parts of their brain that would interfere with their ability to receive information. So, you know, they can shut down things that get in the way. But of course, from sort of a normal, in air quotes, I just made air quotes if you're listening to this. <laughs> if you're looking at it from a normal brainwave perspective and there's a bunch of slow brainwaves there, it's going to look like, well, that's not normal, right? That's a problem. But maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's just the way that they're able to shift their brain to access other information. So the waves that appeared to be traumatic brain injury-esque, that was not when they were in normal activity. That was when they went in to do psychic or medium readings. No, that was actually just at baseline. Oh, at baseline. Okay. You'd see aspects of traumatic brain injury and then extreme changes when they were not at baseline. Right. Yeah. By, by the way, by the way, this is this is not an encouragement for anybody to run out there and get a brain injury. There's other ways to become psychic and medium uh, without conking your head. That's good to know. Yes. Disclaimer. Do not go get damage your head. So one thing I've noticed, even with the best of mediums, is they all sometimes get a piece of wrong information. Did you notice any correlations or is it even this precise? Was there a difference in their brain activity when there was a piece of wrong information versus right? It's a great question. And unfortunately, my my testing so far hasn't been that precise. You know, the folks over at Winbridge and places like that have done studies where they're able to kind of look at it much pr more precisely. They've got the mediums in a very controlled laboratory environment where, you know, it's like, here's the piece of information that I want you to respond to. And they've got this window of time where it's one specific piece of information and it's very controlled. And so they've got some data looking at that. If you look at their research, my, the way that I've approached this work, it's more like field research. And what I mean by that is, and it's just the way that I've done it. And I, and I kind of like this approach is that my assumption is that 
mediums and psychics are going to really be able to to show their fullest abilities if we don't put too many controls on them. You know, and say, well, you have to do it this way. And it's like, well, uh, what if that's not the way they work, right? I've had some mediums when I've got them hooked up and they're like, well, can I wander around and talk? You know, and it's like, well, (laughs) that's going to mess up getting good readings. But that's how they get information, right? They have to be physically moving. And, and it's like, well, hmm. So I understand the need for control. And I feel like maybe we're limiting what we see, you know, by making it too controlled. So I think both are, are really important. So I'm really appreciative of the work that they're doing, right? And so what I'm trying to offer is kind of that other piece. It's like, well, what do we see kind of in the field? And what can we glean from that? So long story short, what that means is that I don't have as precise of detailed information. Now, one thing I will say that kind of ties into this, and this was just an experiment I did on myself, and I'm certainly not a psychic medium. Well, I shouldn't say that. I would say I have some ability, but I'm not <laughs> I'm not like a Laurel and Jackson, right? So one of the times that I was testing myself and trying to figure some of these things out, what I found was that when I was accurate testing myself with Zener cards, that there was a significant increase of gamma activity. So it's a very fast brainwave in the occipital lobes compared to when I was not accurate. Now, there's reason to believe that that kind of a finding might extend beyond just me, you know, because we see elevated gamma activity in the occipital lobe with a a lot of psychics and mediums. So it may be that that's just a a normal part of the, the process, but it's a great question. And I think one that we probably need to, you know what we need? We need a big giant grant. That's what we need. And uh, we can go set up a a study to examine this perfectly. Oh my God. If you get that grant, I want to come help on it. This is like my dream to sit working (laughs) on this stuff. (laughs) Mine too. Um, Yeah, grant. Yes. (laughs) Now, I want to back up a little. You said Laura was the second medium you found. Who was the first? Was that Janet Mayer? It was Janet Mayer. You know, it's funny because the more time you spend in this weird world, and you've been spending quite a bit of time in this weird world, from what I can gather over the last few years. And so I don't know if you can relate to this or what your take will be, but my feeling is the more time I spend in the weird world, the more weird stuff happens. You know, the synchronicities increase and like just weird things. You know, you could write it off and you could be like, oh, well, you know, it's a coincidence, whatever, uh, you know. And at some point it gets to be like, I don't know, man, there's like just too many weird things, right? You know, I wasn't looking for any of this. I was working at the University of Missouri at the time and, you know, working in the health psychology field, you know, teaching biofeedback and neurofeedback and meditation and kind of a stress reduction kind of a thing for students, you know, on campus. And one of my students that worked for me in my lab was the one who said, hey, I need to tell you about my mom. And I was like, okay. And this was his mom, Janet Mayer. You know, so he was very cautious in how he approached it, which makes sense, right? You kind of don't know how people are going to react when you say, oh, by the way, my mom is a psychic medium and can channel shamanic uh, languages. And I was like, what? He told me the whole story and basically said, hey, do you want to map her brain? 
And I was like, uh, yeah, hello, of course, you know, like, what am I saying? No, no, I don't want to map her brain. So, so that's what started this all, right? Was, you know, him. Well, first we should mention who Janet Mayer is because she has such a unique story, not just a psychic medium. No, I don't want to take back saying just a psychic medium. She's a psychic medium. She just talks to dead people. Yeah. Justifies the laws of the universe and it's backed up by science. No big deal. So yes, Janet is also a really highly evidential medium who has like Laura blown me away with what she did in her early days, in my early days, sorry. So she was among one of the first ones I met in my early grief. And she has a really unique story. Do you want to tell it? Yeah, yeah. So Janet, so it was funny because I, I maybe I didn't even know she was a psychic medium. This other piece of of kind of what she does is really what came up first. So the, the short version is that she had gone to a holotropic breathwork session with her sister. Actually, she went twice. And the, the first time they went, it was sort of a typical um, holotropic breathwork session, which if you've ever done holotropic breathwork, you know that there's not really a typical session. It, it's very psychedelic, but it's using a rapid breathwork process with evocative music and various other things that kind of like puts you into a, a psychedelic state. So the first time they did it, you kind of get into your own stuff, your own process, things might happen. You might feel sort of blissed out at the end. But then the second time in the middle of her session, Janet sat up and just started spontaneously saying something in what appeared to be a language that she had never heard. She didn't recognize. She didn't know what she was saying. In fact, she didn't even know if it was a language. It was just stuff coming out of her mouth. and you know, kind of freaked her out. And um, this continued beyond this holotropic breathwork session. So initially it was, it would just kind of erupt out of her at various times until she was able to sort of learn how to control it. And by the time I met her, she, this had been going on for years and she could kind of turn it on and turn it off. And I'll just add quickly, she has a book that describes her whole experience called um, Spirits, They Are Present. And basically it's a long journey where she tracked down the language and found out she was speaking a tribal language. I won't give away the whole story of the book, but essentially that's it. Oh, and I should mention, Laura has two great books too, Signs and the Light Between Us, and Janet has Spirits. They are present. And I guess you came in after her language. She'd verified that she was speaking a tribal language and had backed it up. And Exactly. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I think she they eventually figured out she was speaking four different tribal dialects. So, you know, that's like stuff, it's hard, you can't make it up, you know, it's like, I mean, well, I guess you could make it up, but when you have an anthropologist from South America verifying that these are legitimate languages and can translate them, you know, it's like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that information, right? You know, I mean, like, what does that mean? And so it really starts to kind of mess with your well, with I shouldn't say your, with my concept of of what reality is, right? And like what what it means to be in this physical body. Because clearly there's there's something else going on. So what was Janet's brain like? First of all, I'm gonna ask, from what I understand, language is stored in different parts of our brain. Our primary language that we learn as little children or languages. And then if as an adult or even I believe after like 
12 years old, if you start learning a secondary language, it goes into another part of your brain. Am I correct in that? Yes. I, I actually, <laughs> I don't, I, actually, I don't know. The primary language centers are in the left hemisphere, right? Uh, so the left frontal lobe is more expressive language. The left back quadrant is more receptive language. I do remember reading some research, though, that if you learn more than one language, especially later, you know, like after you're kind of out of your early childhood, that you do engage way more brain regions, right? It's like a, it's like a larger scale kind of process, but I don't remember the specifics. So then now, Janet, speaking this language, did it mimic language reg regions of the brain? So again, this was the first person that I had looked at. So she was one of the ones where that part of the brain that I'd already mentioned before in that back right quadrant. So hers, it looked like a seizure back there. I, and I, sh I showed some other people in the neurofeedback world, right? You know, and I was like, what do you think is going on here? And they're like, oh, you've got a bad connection. That's just, you know, the electrode is bad or there's a bad connection because the signals, they don't look like a, a human would make them, right? They're like, it looks like there's something wrong with the system. and you know, I mean, I've recorded Janet, I don't know how many times, six times. And I checked my caps. I checked all my connections. I checked, I triple checked everything. And this pattern showed up over and over and over and over again. It wasn't a bad connection. It wasn't a bad cap. And you know, what's, so for me, what's important about that is you're bringing up a really good point, right? That it's like, well, it wasn't the language centers that were lighting up. What was lighting up was this spot in the back corner of the brain, which, you know, researchers, well, actually researchers don't call it this. The media calls it the God spot, this area in the back corner. And they call it that because when they studied people that had injuries to that part of the brain, they became more spiritual and more empathic. So it's very interesting because what that part of the brain is really about is creating boundaries. So one of its one of its primary jobs is establishing a sense of identity separate from everybody else. I'm Jeff. I live in this little meat suit. You're Liz. You live in your meat suit and we're totally separate from each other and I have my thoughts and you have your thoughts. Like that part of the brain, like that's part of its job is to create that perception. So it's interesting because when these mediums and Janet when that area of the brain is disrupted, well, what does that mean? And I think what it means is that those boundaries are no longer there, right? You've kind of interfered with that part of the brain doing its normal job. So then I think it becomes easier to connect to something outside of yourself. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts.
have you also studied Janet when she was giving a medium reading and a psychic reading? Was it consistent with the general abnormalities you were seeing in mediums overall? Was it way out of left field compared to other psychic medium readings? Or was it did it fall in the range of psychic medium readings in general? Yeah, no, my recollection is that it was it was fairly consistent with what I've seen with other psychic mediums. I guess some of the other mediums you've studied also are Angelina Diana and Joanne Gerber. Yeah. And how anything unique about their brains outside of the unique medium brain overall? So there, there's a, a few patterns that show up. But one of the things that's interesting is if you look at Laura's brain and you look at Joanne's brain, there's going to be some similarities and there's going to be differences. And that's true with any two, pick any two mediums that I've looked at. And there's probably going to be some overlap and then there's going to be some differences. And so, so far, I've not seen two mediums that are exactly the same in terms of what their brains do. For me, what I'm noticing is that it's more about the brain regions than specific brain waves. So each medium seems to figure out their own way of disrupting normal activity in the brain. So that back region that we've been talking about shows up a lot. The occipital lobes with the visual processing shows up a lot. And the other main area is the right frontal lobe shows up a lot. So those three areas are kind of the, I mean, they're kind of the big three. And it doesn't mean sometimes other stuff doesn't show up. Sometimes it does, but it tends to be very right hemisphere oriented and fairly specific to those three areas. You mentioned that you studied yourself doing Zener cards. And have there ever been any studies that you know of that compares the brain activity when people are doing other types of inexplicable, what I call what the fuck stuff, like OBEs, out-of-body experiences, or remote viewing, and experts in those fields. Have they had any of their neural activities studied? Those are areas that I haven't ventured as far into. I've kind of, the areas that I've spent more time in is psychics, mediums, and energy healers. So I haven't really ventured very far into sort of OBE, remote viewing kind of land. But it's interesting because some of the studies that I have seen, guess what? There is another overlap. That same doggone brain region, that right back corner, um, but also the temporal lobes. So a lot of times with OBEs and with things of that nature, the temporal lobes seem to be involved. I haven't seen a ton with temporal lobes in the work that I've done. There's a couple of people. Joanne Gerber, she had some stuff going on in the temporal lobes. But the majority of people, I didn't really see a whole lot happening there. But that is an area that shows up a lot with OBE type work. And you have worked then with energy healers as well. What are some of the interesting data you've gathered from energy healers? And there's a couple of different ways we can kind of think about this. There's a couple of patterns that show up. You know, the, the, the most obvious one, I say obvious just because you hear about this a lot. And in, when you read things about energy work, people comment on this and they're not wrong that theta, theta brain waves are involved in healing. And that does seem to show up a lot. Theta is a slow brain wave and is more connected to kind of subconscious patterns. 
so one of the theories that I have about that process is that it's almost a bit like a shamanic kind of work where you're, you're kind of shifting into this, I don't know what you want to call it, a deeper state of consciousness, a, a different a different way of kind of engaging in the energy world, right? And you kind of have to slow your brain way down to get into that space. So it's pretty common to see energy healers get into that theta zone. Now, at the same time, I've seen energy healers also show a bunch of gamma, the fastest brain wave. So if I had to pick two brain waves that are semi-consistently involved in all this stuff, it's theta and gamma. So it's like this really slow brain wave and this really fast brain wave. And in some cases, you'll see people do both at the same time. There's a big increase of theta and a big increase of gamma. So that's curious, you know, that this, that that pattern keeps showing up even in different things, right? Like energy healing. It's like, well, that's different than mediumship. And it's like, yeah, it is. It's, but, but yet there must be something, there's some sort of similarity in terms of shifting states of consciousness. So what is the similarity and what is the difference of energy healer versus psychic medium brains? Well, it's, it's more the brain waves that we see, right? So the specific brain regions, not, there's not as much overlap, but the, but the specific brain waves, the theta and gamma are the, the kind of biggies that show up all over the place. It almost doesn't matter what, what we're looking at. It tends to be theta and, and gamma. And so you know, there seems to be something important about those brain waves for all of this work. Now, with energy healers, I don't know that I've studied enough of them to confidently say, oh, this brain region is more important than another brain region. I have seen that their brains can get really, I'm going to say quiet. But what I mean by that is I was just talking about like increasing theta and gamma. The other pattern that you'll see sometimes is where all of the brain waves kind of drop down. It sort of flattens out. And, you know, it's like the brain gets really quiet. And so that's another pattern that you'll see sometimes with healers. One of the more interesting little studies that I did a few years back was actually looking at people receiving energy healing. So rather than looking at the healers, you know, looking at like, well, what's going on in people's brains who are receiving energy healing? And we actually set the study up so that Everybody that was receiving healing came in twice and they sat in a chair facing away from the healer. So the healer was behind them, you know, at a significant distance. And we didn't tell the, the person receiving healing which session they were receiving healing. One time it was just a placebo. The healer just stood back there and, you know, hung out, right, for 30 minutes or whatever. And then another time they actually did the healing. So we tried to control as many things as we could, but to compare the difference. Well, is there a difference in the brain when somebody's actually receiving healing versus a placebo? And there was, there was definitely a difference when you looked at the brain imaging between the two conditions. The part that was problematic in terms of trying to interpret the data is that every subject was completely different. So the way that their brain changed, there was no consistency whatsoever between subjects. And, and so, of course, when I had to try to make sense of the data, that was super frustrating because it's like, well, you know, what am I supposed to say about this? But actually, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense 
because it's like, well, you're different than me, right? Your brain behaves different than mine. You probably have different issues than I have, right? And so if you're getting healed and I'm getting healed, why would our brains change the same way? That doesn't even make sense. When you say it out loud, it's like, well, that's stu- that's dumb. Well, it doesn't even make any sense. And so it actually makes more sense that our brains would do something different from each other. It would do whatever it needs to do. Now, I know you mentioned, again, that you tested yourself doing Zener cards. And there's a lot you and Laura, I know, talked about this quite a bit at the event that us non-mediums can connect ourselves. What are some tips on that? And have non-medium brains ever been scanned while they are attempting well we i should say since i'm a non-medium while we are attempting to connect so many pieces in there where do i want to start so uh let me start with that last part first it's actually the study that we're working on right now is trying to get a little bit more formal about looking at non-mediums when they're trying to tap in whatever that means both unassisted meaning like Give them some basic instructions and say, okay, uh, tap in, (laughs) you know, tune in. Can you, can you connect with any disembodied entities? Okay, go and see what happens. Right. But then also one of the areas that I've been doing a lot of work in recently is how can we use technology based interventions? So neurofeedback, pulsed electromagnetic frequencies, audio visual entrainment, things like that, how can we use that to sort of nudge the brain into a pattern or a direction that might make it more open to this information? So one of the things that we're actively studying right now, it's like, well, what's the difference, right? If I take somebody who's not psychic or not a medium, say, okay, do your best. Okay, now let's, let's have you use this technology and now try to tap in and what was that like? And and how was that different? And what's your brain doing differently? Did it nudge your brain in the right direction? And we have some preliminary data just with, you know, a handful of cases that the technology does seem to make a difference in a positive way that we can kind of encourage the brain into similar patterns that we might see with the psychics and mediums. So interfering with that right back quadrant, for example. and you know, if we do that, for some people, it definitely changes their experience. And non-medium, the change in brain patterns, it mimics that same right quadrant you're saying. So if we stimulate that in certain ways, we can have a certain level of experiences of psychic mediums. Yes. And sort of. Um, So, you know, the... (laughs) It is true that stimulating the brain in certain ways seems to help, but what I'm noticing is that just stimulating the brain by itself is not sufficient for most people. It's like you also have to practice shifting your awareness, right? And so whether that's with meditation techniques or with taking classes from mediums and psychics who are teaching you how to tap in, how to pay attention to subtle information. So like having some skills and having some ways to practice with the technology is where I I see people really making some significant gains. But, you know, if somebody has no skills and no awareness of how to pay attention and you zap their brain, well, well, so what? 
you know, they might feel more relaxed or something else, but it doesn't seem to have the same effect. So it's kind of like you need them together, right? I think of it as like training wheels, right? Training wheels are a tool to help you find your balance, find the right place to be, but you still got to know how to steer and how to pedal and how to, you still have to have some sort of active role in the process. You know, it would be an amazing study and tell me if this has been done, having a medium give a reading in person, a psychic and a medium one, not on the phone in person and measure the brain patterns of both the sitter and the medium. Yeah. So this is another project that I'm working on. So a good friend of mine, I'll leave his name out of it just because, you know, I don't know how much he wants me to share, but he is a EEG engineer. Basically, he builds EEG systems as well as heart rate variability systems. And so one of the projects that we're working on, it's called hyperscanning. And so this is something that's been out there in the world for a little while, but it hasn't been used in this context So we're actually developing a system where we could hook up two people and see how their brain waves are synchronized, how they impact each other in sophisticated ways. And what we're ultimately working on developing is something where you could have as many systems as you wanted all interconnected. So you could have a group of people and it's like, well, how are the brain waves of the entire group interconnected? How does one person influence another person through their brainwave patterns? And even eventually creating sort of a a biofeedback system with that. So you could train people to get in sync with each other. That that sounds so amazing. I hope that comes soon. That sounds really great. Yeah. So I don't think you're going to have an answer for this. It's just, it's a question (laughs) I've wanted to ask you for a while, but... It's two part. First of all, um, you, do you know about microtubules? Have you been following the research of Dr. Stuart Hameroff and Sir Roger Penrose and how they think microtubules, or audience can know, might be a part of the brain that possibly could quantum entangle with some with our consciousness that is non-local, you know, discarnate from our body after we pass away. And we don't know at all the molecular structure or quantum components of this discarnate consciousness. It's just, there's evidence it seems to continue. Do you think, this is just a random theory, I'm sort of pulling it out of my ass, but I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Do you think there's a chance that mediums have a significantly more amount of microtubules than the non-mediums and are maybe able to quantum entangle more easily in some way. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. It's a, you know, what it made me think of is uh, midi-chlorians. You familiar with midi-chlorians in Star Wars? I'm embarrassed to say this. I have to change this. I've actually never really watched Star Wars. I need to go do it. I know, I know. As someone who's fascinated by all this, I wasn't so fascinated until I lost my dad. So I was like, not... The Star Wars person, now I'm like, okay, I've got to catch up my new self with all the stuff that everyone else is, is passing by. Well, midi-chlorians are some sort of, uh, you know, little chemical thing that Jedis have. It's what makes them Jedis, where they can control the force. And so if you have more midi-chlorians, you're a stronger Jedi, right? Anyway, that was the analogy I was trying to make. But you know, it's an interesting idea. I have no idea, of course, but you know, the other thing that I think about is to some degree, I don't know that 
it's necessary for the brain structure to be different. Like, I don't know that that is the important element, at least the way I'm thinking about it now. I think it's more the ability to shift the functioning of the brain. And I think some people are just more naturally capable of doing that. And, you know, and it's easier for them to sort of shift in and out of certain states of consciousness and awareness than others of us. But, you know, every psychic medium I've ever talked to, and I think you've said this in your book, they all say, we all have this ability. It's not anything special. It's like, well, it kind of is special. And I think they're probably right that, that we all have this capacity, but some of us might have thicker heads than others, right? And so uh, trying to get your brain to behave in a way that is conducive to this. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it at the moment is that maybe it doesn't have to be a structural issue as much as just a, a function issue, which is where I think there's, for me, there's more hope in that idea because what that then means is that, well, if I can teach myself or train my brain how to shut down certain things or shift states of awareness, then, you know, then perhaps I can increase my own abilities. Do you think that all of us then could have the abilities of Alora, Janet, Joanne, Angelina, however much we do this, could we have that level of skill? I th I think it depends, right? I think in theory, yes. And actually some of some of the people like that, they'll tell you stories, right? That they weren't always as skilled as they are now. Sometimes something happens, right? Something just clicks. And then it's like, oh, okay, now I've got a better ability to do this thing, you know, than before. Or sometimes it's just like practicing so much <laughs> and over so long which if I'm remembering right, I think that was Joanne Gerber's story. She had a natural ability, but she worked her tail off to get really good at this. She did a ton of training, a ton of practice, you know, over years and years and years and years and years to really hone her skill. So, you know, I think it is possible. But again, how many of us are willing to put that much work in? I mean, most of us, we can't even sit and meditate for 15 minutes a day. So... <laughs> That's true. And most of us, you know, I mean, Joanne is a medium for her career. Most of us are putting a lot of time into our careers. You know, we might love the idea of mediumship, connecting with our loved ones, but we haven't dedicated our whole career to it. You know, you can only do so many things in this life too. Exactly. You know, like I think about like some of the research looking at meditation, right? Because that's another area of my work. And the, the research that compares Buddhist monks to a control group of people who have never meditated, you know, and it's like, well, oh, come on, you know, like that's not a very fair comparison, right? Like literally these are people who meditate all day long. That's their job is to meditate. And so they're probably pretty good at it. And then comparing them to people who have never meditated, it's like, well, guess what? They suck at meditation because they've never even tried, right? And so in some ways, I think there might be an analogy there, right? That it's like, well, yeah, if you practice something all day long, every day for 10, 20 years, you're going to get pretty good at it. Hopefully. <laughs> if not, maybe you should pick a different career. And then there's a lot of the mediums that haven't had to try at all. They said they couldn't right. turn it off. It was coming to them when they were children. Some of them will say all of us have this ability. I actually am not fully sure what I think. I think there's a lot more research to be done, but 
I do wonder the extent to which they were in families that were told if they'd report something, oh, yes, this is what you're doing, work on it, versus, you know, the type of family I was in thought this was absolute nonsense. Like any little thing, you know, as you're a little child, you learn all the different options, anything related to this stuff. I was kind of gently told none of it's true. Not that I really had the experiences the mediums are sharing of seeing like my grandma sitting on my bed tucking me in when I was two. But nevertheless, anything related to this that I ever brought up in my family was immediately shot down. And I just do wonder if all of us were in a culture where this was developed from early childhood, what that would be like. I think it's a really important question, you know, and something that I've thought about a little bit because you hear a lot of stories about people who, little kids, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds who see ghosts, talk to dead people, talk to God, have all of these kinds of things. And then it kind of just goes away. And and it's interesting because it's like, well, what's going on there? It's like, well, development of language, development of social expectations and, you know, <laughs> a certain level of indoctrination and also a shift in brainwaves. You know, little kids, their dominant brainwave frequency is theta. And as we get older, the brain speeds up and it moves out of theta into more of an alpha brainwave state. And so to me, it all sort of fits. It all goes together, right? That it's like, you know, little kids are more tapped in naturally. They're more creative. They're more open. You know, how many little kids have imaginary friends, right? And it's like, okay, you know, what's up with that, right? And it's like, it's like, oh, that's cute. It's an imaginary friend. Is it? Or are they paying attention to something that who knows? But then, you know, as they get older and kind of trained, that's not real and their brain starts to shift. Well, then, you know, all of a sudden it's not real and your brain's not as open to it anymore. Am I right in asking you have done work with autistic kids? You've worked a bit with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell. Am I right? Yeah, we actually, you know, <laughs> again, the universe, the universe is funny. I actually met her at the same conference where I met Laura Lynn and Diane was presenting at that conference. So we met there. Turns out we now only live about two and a half hours from each other. At the time I lived in Missouri and she lived here in Oregon, but I moved to Oregon and now we're sort of neighbors anyway. And so we've reconnected and worked on various things together. And in the last year, she has invited me to participate in some of the research she's doing, uh, which she's been doing for a long time of looking at nonverbal autistic individuals and their telepathic abilities with their caregivers. And, you know, she invited me to participate because of the brain imaging stuff, you know, looking at the EEGs. And, you know, honestly, when she first invited me, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I hadn't really done my homework, to be honest. Uh, I was like, sure, yeah, that sounds cool. And then when I saw some of these kids and adults, yeah, kind of kind of blew my mind. I take it that means they did have telepathic abilities. Can you share an example that you witnessed? Sure, yeah. So far, I've had the opportunity to work with three of these kids and adults. The, the ones I've worked with have all been sort of teenagers or into their early 20s. All three of them that I've worked with are nonverbal, autistic. They communicate, all three of them communicate by pointing to 
a number board or a letter board so they can spell things. And that's how they communicate. And actually, in all three cases, that's how the parents, the moms in these cases, figured out that they were telepathic. Because if before they could communicate, how would you know? You had no idea what was going on. And then once they learned how to use a letter board, all of a sudden, the parents are going like, wait a minute. Uh, hmm, there's some weird things happening. Start asking questions. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. He's reading my mind or she's reading my mind. And so, you know, the first, uh, uh, the, the, I'll, I'll tell you the story of the very first time that I was at one of these testing sessions, because again, like I kind of didn't know what to expect. I've done enough of this stuff that I was kind of like, eh, they're probably better than average, right? Like that's how we do things in, with statistics. It's like, well, if you're going to get 20% of something correct by chance, then if you get 30%, right, like that's significant and that's pretty cool, right? And, you know, what I saw made that look like nothing, right? It was like these guys were these, I mean, literally they were perfect. So the very first example was this young woman and I was outside kind of watching this on a monitor, um, you know, so we didn't have a bunch of people in the room. And Diane said, well, let's, let's start with a, a random number. It's like, okay. In my brain, I'm going like, oh, a random number, like one to 10, right? You know, like, okay. And she's like, okay, uh, I've got the, an app on my iPad here and it's a random number generator app. And so we'll go, uh, let's go from zero to 999. Let's start there. Boop. And I'm going like, holy crap. I'm like, that's like, okay. Like that's what you're starting with, right? So hits go, it spits out a number. Let's say it's 142. And she shows the mom the number. It's it's angled away so that her daughter can't see it. And what was interesting about this is the kids and the, the, the autistic kids and adults, they were not trying to cheat. They could care less, right? Like this is like so normal for them. Like they were like, whatever, right? So shows mom the iPad with the number on it, closes the iPad. Mom puts her finger on the girl's forehead and she immediately goes to the letter board one, four, two. And I was like, what the, like, that's, that's insane. Statistically, that's impossible. Right. And then she just did it over and over and over. Let's do four digits. No problem. Let's do a, a random word pulled out of a book from the bookshelf. No problem. It did not matter what it was. If the mom saw it, she got it. And this is what I've seen with three, three of these individuals now is perfect, like a hundred percent accurate, just over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like, that's nuts. I mean, again, how do you, how do you explain that? Had you told me, am I right? There's some story there's a group of autistic, nonverbal kids and young adults. They're not socializing, not don't seem engaged. And they go out of their bodies and meet in a place and socialize with each other out of body. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this story from, from a few different, it's the parents, but the parents, you know, know about it because the, the, the kids told them, right. Like wrote it out and kind of told them that they will kind of go into this. I don't know what to call it, except sort of a, a psychic space. And there's other nonverbal autistic folks in this psychic space and they like hang out with each other and like interact and 
It's like their little, you know, like online chat group. <laughs> you know? And it's consistent. It's been told consistently amongst nonverbal. Yeah, yeah. I heard this from several people. And so it's like, okay, all right. Interestingly, some of these folks also talk about talking to deceased relatives and talking to God and, you know, kind of getting information from higher sources, right? So it's interesting because there's clearly a lot going on. We're just kind of getting started with with this study. You know, I mean, Diane's been studying this for a long time, you know, but really documenting and verifying that this is real, right? And kind of just collecting a lot of that data. So now we're taking it to the next level of, well, can we understand what's going on from a brainwave perspective? So we're just kind of getting started with that. And have you noticed that nonverbal autistic children have some of the consistencies with mediums' brains? Somewhat. And I should say, it's a lot harder to get clean data with some of these folks because EEG is, while I love it because it's it's accessible, it's easy to use and transport, it's very susceptible to non-EEG noise kind of getting into the signal. Any kind of muscle movement or other electrical activity in the environment can interfere with the signal. So what that means is that if a person is blinking their eyes, if they're talking, if they tighten their, if they raise their eyebrows, if they move, like all of that creates muscle artifact that kind of drowns out the EEG signal. And of course, you know, most folks with autism, part of the difficulty is they have difficulty controlling their bodies. So there's a lot of vocalizations, there's a lot of movement, and it's really hard to control. So it's been really difficult to get good data. That being said, some of the data that we were have been able to get so far, in some cases, it does seem to overlap. So a lot of right hemisphere stuff, again, in some cases, it's the right frontal lobe, either becomes activated or deactivated. And then there's also been some increases of theta in the right hemisphere. Again, pretty consistent. And then kind of an interesting one that that I saw was actually an increase of alpha in the left hemisphere. And at the same time on the right hemisphere, there was a change in coherence, which is an EEG metric that looks at how connected certain areas are. So there's an increase in fast brain waves and beta on the right side. And so this very hemisphere specific kind of patterns showing up, which again suggests to me that there's something about the right hemisphere that is really important for a lot of this work, which makes sense. And it actually makes sense in this context because of talking about nonverbal individuals, because most language is processed in the left hemisphere. And so it starts to paint a picture where words might actually be part of the problem is that because as soon as we use language, we are constructing something. We've changed it from what it is to something that we're analyzing, judging, interpreting, predicting, all the things that language allow us to do, which is super helpful in day-to-day life but it also might keep us from seeing things as they truly are. And so I think the right hemisphere is better at that. But we need the language in order to be able to communicate this stuff, right? 
So we kind of have to do both and figure out how to balance that or go back and forth between them very efficiently. So I think that's what we're seeing with some of these individuals, right? Why there's such a difference left and right is that the right activation is the tapping in and then the left hemisphere is more like, now how can I communicate it? What were your thoughts on mediumship, afterlife, psychic abilities before you began researching this? (laughs) I've had sort of a funny, weird journey because as a kid, I was fascinated by all this stuff. I loved anything unusual, anything paranormal. I was always like getting books from the library on the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and uh, and all of my favorite movies as a kid were Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Poltergeist. And I loved all of that stuff. And especially aliens. I was really into aliens and UFOs. That was my biggest thing, right? But But I loved all of it. And really wanted it to be true. And, and I'd say, you know, that curiosity was there for a pretty long time and interest. And, you know, then I went to college. And at the beginning of college, I met some woo-woo friends who were into seeing auras and tarot cards and stuff. And that was kind of fun. You know, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Besides reading about this in books, there's people who do this thing. Okay, interesting. So I had some fun with that. And then got into graduate school, right? And got into, you know, really more serious scientific study. And at that point, I became like a super skeptic. Uh, For a while, I even had a subscription to Skeptic Magazine, believe it or not. I was kind of like, okay, this is all, you know, I was just deluding myself. This is all, you know, just wishful thinking. And um, there's a scientific explanation for all of these things. And, And then at some point, I don't know what happened. I flipped over to the other side again. And, you know, I was like, wait a minute, there's got to be more to this. So I I feel like in some ways you and I might have similar things. It's like, man, I really want to believe. I really want this all to be true. But I've got this sciencey, skeptical part of my brain. I'm from Missouri, you know, the show me state. It's like, show me, right? It's like, you know, okay, uh, I'll believe it when I see it. So I've been battling those. I think those two parts have been battling with each other. Most of my life now, if I had to say where I'm at at the moment, I can't not believe based on some of the things I've seen, you know, like some of these autistic individuals, you can't see that and walk away the same. It's impossible. You see it and you go like, oh my God, there's so much more than we understand. It proves it. If I'm telling you this and you're a skeptic, you're going to be like, oh, well, whatever. It could be this. It could be that. Dr. Tarrant, you know, who knows? If you see it with your own eyes, you can't question it, right? It's right there. And so I've seen enough things that I have to believe. And it's so weird because I can still be skeptical. Things will still happen. And I'm kind of like, well, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I would say I'm, I'm a believer, but I'm also a skeptic. I don't believe everything I see. I don't believe everything I hear. I assume that the majority of things that people report are probably not real, but then I think there is real stuff. And so I think part of the trick is figuring out the difference, right? I really relate to everything you just said about that. Yes. Is there one thing you want to share, like most mind-blowing thing you've seen? The most mind-blowing thing I've seen are the autistic folks that, I mean, it's just, un, it's unbelievable. And, and and what's even more unbelievable is now that I've seen it a few times, now when I see it again, it's kind of like, eh, okay. 
which is totally weird. How how can you see something like that and not be blown away every time, right? It's like, oh yeah, they're 100% accurate with telepathy. Okay, all right. Uh, what else you got? But easily, that's the most impressive thing I've seen. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. Christina asks, I tend to believe that our souls reincarnate. So if that could be true, how does a medium reach a soul that is already reincarnated for readings? I had the same question early on. So I'll start with what two different mediums told me when I asked this, and then I'll explain it how I see it now. So I asked Lorlin Jackson, and she explained that it was a lot like a maypole, and that was how her teacher had explained it to her. And that just heads up that we as humans won't really understand this. It just can't, isn't something our brains can really process. But picture a maypole. The center of that is our consciousness, and each ribbon is a life. So we experience each life in a time sequence while here, but the way it seems to work on the other side is that our core consciousness, that's who we fully are, is like the center of the pole, and all our lives are going on at the same time, and the center is what the medium speaks to. And again, none of us as humans, including Laura, I'm assuming including her teacher, can really process that exactly because we process everything in linear time while here. And then the next medium that I asked, Doreen Malloy, said something very similar. Doreen described a bicycle wheel. And the, in the center of this bicycle wheel is our main consciousness. And that's what the medium connects with. And all the spokes within the bicycle wheel that come out of the center is like another life. And this is the best way I can explain it as I see it. I think our main consciousness is a type of quantum particle, like our main consciousness that's on the other side. Maybe there are different levels of quantum particles or different clusters. And maybe one day we will get a machine such as a much more advanced Large Hadron Collider, like much, much more advanced. And it will be able to measure what this non-local consciousness is made of, the type of quantum particles, and who knows, we'll be able to measure them. And then this quantum particle mass is the core of our consciousness. And it probably is in another dimension, somehow tied into string theory. And it entangles with a brain and body during a specific lifetime. But after the lifetime, your life and all the information uploads back into the quantum consciousness. And it's another experience that becomes part of the main you. And when the medium's communicating, it's communicating with that stored cloud-like quantum consciousness. It's like a cloud bank of sorts. And in a way, all three of us are pretty much saying the same thing. The only thing I'm saying differently is I'm not saying all these lives are going on at the same time. I could be wrong. I just can't even explain that. So I 
don't <laughs> add that part. I kind of stick when I explain it with time still being linear. So none of this is a fact, but it all seems to be the best hypotheses we have so far. And I hope that helps. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance. But that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me. And some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Where can our listeners find you, get your book, follow up on your research? 
The website that we're using to talk about this branch of my work is Psychic Mind Science. So, you know, just psychicmindscience.com. We've got a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. And so you can find us there if you're interested in what we're up to. The book, the, the book is called Becoming Psychic. And it's, you know, it talks about some of the things we've been talking about, share some of the research and stories. It actually won't be released till November 7th, I think. Um, but it is available for pre-order, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever, all your normal retailers. And then, yeah, you know, if folks are interested in something more live, we're going to be doing a workshop with Laura Lynn. You're going to be there in New York. When is that? June 21st? It's June 23rd and 24th. Right. So Laura's doing a gallery reading on the 23rd. And then we're doing an all-day workshop together on the 24th. So that'd be fun. Any, uh, any folks from New York, it'd be fun to see you there. Thank you so much. This was just an amazing conversation. I've gotten to ask you questions I've wanted to ask you for years since I first read about your work, probably in like 2016 when I started delving in. So thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Actually, I told you I was, I've been reading your book and, uh, and when I bounced across my, my, my own name in there, I was like, oh, I'm in this book. Uh, you're in the book. <laughs> yes. You're in it. <laughs> First related to Laura and then to Janet. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. small world. Uh, so small anyway, world. I appreciate you having me on and uh, it was a lot of fun. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There, you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.